Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brad from Heinemann, and today on the Heinemann Podcast, we're continuing our series of conversations with author Cornelius Minor. Today, Cornelius is teaching us how to make time for change and the power of being what he calls semi-brave. The ability to be brave, Cornelius says, is not an inherent trait, but rather a skill that is utilized when the time is right. In his book, We Got This, Cornelius says it's not necessary to be brave every second of every day, but rather in the moments when we are called upon to raise our voice and advocate for the right thing. We started our conversation with how to be rebellious in the classroom. It's the thing I grapple with every day. And I think to really get my mind around it, I've thought about all of the things that we know about the world that kids inhabit. We know that our girls are underrepresented in science and technology. We know that children of color continue to be suspended at rates exponential to their white peers. We know that poor children are more likely to attend schools that are under-resourced and underfunded. And these things are wrong. You know, they're racist, they're classist, they're sexist. And so I think for many of us who care about children and care about communities, we are backed into this radical stance where we are staring at racism every day. We are staring at sexism every day. You know that even though school is a great place and we are great people, school as an institution continues to perpetuate these things. And so I feel like for the last few years, especially educators who are really close to kids are in this radical stance. But then that does force the question, yeah, how do I stay job secure Mm. when I'm combating rampant sexism, when I'm combating homophobia, when I'm combating classism? You know, how do I stay job secure? And I've really been grappling with that because there's not quite a clear answer. And so for me, I've really tried to boil it down into three things, you know, and and so many teachers in our communities really care about children. They care about families. And so I kind of locate kind of my first action or my first teacher action where I think about like, how do I communicate to the communities that I serve? And so when I think about what I can do as a radical teacher, stay in touch is the first thing where I'm always thinking about how do I speak with parents? How do they speak back to me? Do parents have a way to get to me that is not a parent-teacher conference? Mm -hmm. Do parents have a way to get to me that is not through the principal's office? And so I want to make sure that I'm as close as possible to parents. So I've been thinking at the top of each year for the last two years, I've been asking parents, what's the best way for me to get to you? Mm -hmm. Is it an email newsletter? Or do you all have the kind of inboxes that are cluttered all the time? Or, you know, is it a text message? And so really allowing parents to talk to me and say, hey, Cornelius, this is how we want to hear from you. And um, recently I've been using a few apps or I tell parents, hey, I'm always going to post student work on this hallway. So Mm -hmm. if you want to know how the kids are doing, it's always going to be over here. But really just establishing that communication, because what starts to happen is I want to make sure that communication is two ways. So it's not just me communicating out to parents, but if I do it well, parents start to talk to me. And when parents start to talk to me, what shows up is their concern about Mm -hmm. their girls. What shows up is how much they want their kids to read. What shows up is their frustration around not having access to certain resources. And so now all of a sudden my radical posture is justified (laughs) because I've got parent data. (laughs) And so when I think about how I maintain my job in a system that forces me into this radical position, it's because I'm always in touch with community. If every action that I engage in is linked to the community, then I'm always going to win. And I think that's been a big thing. For me, the second big action has been rooted in 
the actual content that I teach, that I've got to be really yeah. good at my content. Oh, yeah. So if I want to be a radical educator, <laughs> um, I got to be good at teaching English because yeah. that's, you know, that's what I do. And so the nouns, the verbs, I got to be on it. And what happens is you get a lot of autonomy in a school building if people know that at the end of the day, you know your stuff. Mm -hmm. And so even though I care about racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, even though I care about all these things, I got to be really good at the teaching of literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and be so, up in your game. exactly, exactly. And so it's been really fun to form informal study groups with other teachers, some in my department, some at other schools, but to sit and say, hey, we're going to meet once a week and we're just going to get good at what we do. So we'll be those people that when you come to our classrooms, every kid is going to be on top of their game in terms yeah. of vocabulary. Every kid's going to be on top of their game in terms of their essay writing. And so that way, when I do these other things on the side, that speak to some of the broader issues that concern me, those actions are not questioned because I've taken care of first things first. Mm -hmm. And so that's been like really huge for me. And then the third thing, how do I maintain my posture as a radical educator is my peers and my colleagues. That a lot of times when I'm tired, a friend will lift me up. Mm -hmm. And so staying in touch, you know, I think one easy way to destroy any social movement is to keep its participants occupied and isolated. Mm -hmm. And so if I want to kill a movement, I just make everybody busy yeah. or I force everybody out of contact. Yeah. And so I think that if we want to move toward more equitable futures, we got to be in contact with yeah. each other. And so that's been huge for me. Well, and even on the train ride here to talk to me today, yeah. you met a teacher who was in her second year yeah. and she was sort of unaware that yeah. the community was there. Exactly. You introduced her to the community. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, that that to me feels kind of intentional. You know, when we think about the history even of union organizing in mm -hmm. this country, one of the things that union busters wanted to do first was they wanted to make sure that people couldn't communicate. So they discourage you moving in with your friends. They discourage you from becoming neighbors. They discourage you from having barbecues because those things foster collaboration. Mm -hmm. Those things foster forward social momentum. And so I do think that though it might not appear so on the surface, one of the most radical things that you can do as a teacher is to invite somebody for coffee mm -hmm. or to sit and talk about how your week went and to strategize about next week. What these things do is they connect us because so many times we feel like we're in our own classroom mm -hmm. suffering individually and we're not, you know, that we can like reach out to another person and say, hey, your struggle is the same as yeah. mine. Let's share resources. Let's share insight. And that to me has been so exciting to see. I think that we're in a really powerful historical moment right now oh, yeah. where, um, you know, you've got teacher social media that's on fire. You've got teachers reading more and more that our access to research and our access to each other is really just exploded. And so it's not uncommon for me to show up at my local coffee shop and to have a friend drop by and talk about teaching but not just talk about it in the old way that we used to do. You know, we used to sit around and complain a lot. And yeah. as our profession has matured, I think what we're doing now is we're strategizing. Yeah. You know, that strategy, you know, used to be a word reserved for those people who sought to shape the world. Mm -hmm. So it's strategy was very much a top-down national agenda kind of thing. Yeah. But when I think about kind of the proletarian nature of strategy, it's us getting together and deciding to be in control of our own teacher destiny. And you've said yes. in the past to be mindful of not getting lost in the complaining, not yeah. to get not to get caught up there, but there's a place for it, certainly. Exactly. Not saying don't complain. You've got to get it off your chest. 
but you've yeah. said do that and then take the next step. Exactly, exactly. And so it's just been really fun. And and even that, you know, that our complaining, yes, it cleanses us, it gets us all out there. <laughs> yeah. But then to kind of say, well, let's lay out three ways that this can go now is really, really important. Or to designate time to say like, hey, we're going to meet up on Tuesday and Tuesday's going to be all complaining. But then when we meet up on Thursday, we're going to take those complaints and move forward. It's time uh, to strategize. Yeah, yeah. But that strategy isn't in the realm of a superintendent or a principal. It's in the mm-hmm. realm of the teacher and that we can do that. A lot of teachers are worried about community, but you know, there's a lot of other things that we want to do with our days, but at the same time, we want to get home by four o'clock, pick up our kids. We want to make dinner. We want to be there for our own families. How do we decide where to put our efforts in? Yeah. You know, and the question that I've really been asking myself is exactly that. Like, where is the revolution? For the semi-brave person who's got to pick the kids up by four. And I like um, semi-brave. I like how you say that because it's like, I've got till four. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and I think so many times when we think about the activists who have cultivated the change that we appreciate, we think about those people in these heroic terms where these people are brave, they're courageous, mm-hmm. and the titles of all the books that we're asked to read, how to have more courage, how to have more mm. bravery. And sometimes I look at that and I'm like... I got like 65% courage. I'm not yeah. like 100% courage, you know, like there are some things that scare me still. Mm-hmm. Um, and so figuring out like, yeah, so what do you do if you're the guy with 65% courage? Like how do you get stuff done? And for me, again, the answer lives in a few places. I think first of all, it's deciding on priorities that as teachers, we've got huge hearts. And because we've got huge hearts, everything concerns us. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to really identify the difference between my realm of concern and my realm of actual influence. Mm -hmm. That, That yes, I'm concerned about poverty. Yes, I'm concerned about like my neighborhood and I'm concerned about the ecosystem and I'm concerned about the recycling program at the school. But those things are huge and can overwhelm me if I'm not careful. Mm -hmm. And so I've really had to sit back and think, Cornelius, what are the things that you actually have power to change right now? And for me, sometimes those are in-classroom things. Those are out-of-classroom things. Those are things that my neighbor and I can get together to do. And so I prioritize my activism around, like, what are the things that I actually have the power to do? And then the second thing I've been thinking about is what can I teach myself so that my realm of actual influence grows for the next time? And so when I'm thinking about that work of being that semi-brave educator, I have kind of two hemispheres that I operate in. So what are the big priorities that I can influence right now? And then what's the learning that I can do so that I can fight a bigger fight the next time? Mm -hmm. And that learning has been so exciting because it means I get to sit next to other teachers. It means that I get to listen to children. It means that I get to check in with families. And I've really sought to learn how can I listen better to communities? How Mm -hmm. can I listen better to kids? And then how can I act efficiently when I do listen? And so one of the things that I'm thinking about right now, I had a, you know, I spend a lot of time playing soccer and skateboarding with kids. (laughs) And so almost all of my teacher aha moments happen at soccer. (laughs) And um, middle school is just a bizarre place, period. Um, And middle school soccer just makes it even more so. And during a game, there was a kid on the other team that was smack talking my goalie. And just like every time he'd come downfield, just smack talk, smack talk, smack talk. And finally, the goalie was just like, if you think you can do this, come on and try. And so the kid was like, okay. And so I'm on the sidelines and I'm watching my goalie trade jerseys with a kid on another team where he dared the kid to step in the goal box and (laughs) and try it. But this is mid game, so I'm losing it. Um, (laughs) And and so this kid that I don't know is now standing 
in, in your goal. In my goal. <laughs> um, and then, and my kid is wearing another middle school. Again, bizarre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we, we stopped the play and I call them over and I'm just like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, and what he said was he was just like, this kid doesn't understand how hard my work is. And that was such a yeah. statement. That's that powerful. That's empathy. Like where yeah. he was just like, this kid keeps trash talking me because he doesn't understand mm -hmm. how hard it is to beat me. Yeah. Um, and so he forced this kid into this capacity building position. And I've been asking myself, how many times do I do that as a teacher? Yeah. Am I brave enough to do that? Am I brave enough to look at a thing that I want to critique and, and force myself into that posture? And so when I think about my own professional learning so that I can fight bigger fights the next time, it's getting with a couple of friends and forcing myself into a different posture. You know, it's really easy to critique the literacy coach, but then to force myself into the posture of a literacy coach, mm -hmm. even though I'm not one, is like a really big thing. And what it does is it generates all this empathy for that person, but then it also generates all this insight for me yeah. that I get to take into the next fight. So I've been thinking a lot about that. You've been giving a lot of thought about bravery, mm -hmm. but you've also talked about being semi-brave. What do you mean by semi-brave? Uh, and it's a term that I've borrowed from my friend um, Dolly Chu. She has um, a great book where she really attempts to grapple with who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in this kind of fractured world. And I think for many of us as teachers, you know, we didn't have to wait for politics to go awry to live in a fractured world. You know yeah. that for many of us, we walk into classroom spaces where we don't have enough books or, you know, where, where kids are, are so needy or where, you know, or there's so much to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, um, when I think about all of the things that we are called to do as educators, I've got to say no to something, mm -hmm. you know, and that's been the hardest part of my work. You know, I'm asked to do word study. I'm asked to do reading and writing. I'm asked to, you know, chaperone the seventh grade dance. And I look at the hours in my day and I've only got 24, but yeah. then I've got work enough for 36. Yeah. And, and saying no can feel like such an extraordinary thing, especially when you've got a principal or a superintendent or a literacy coach looking in your direction. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that it's just kind of fallen on my consciousness is that I've got to find the bravery to say no when asked to choose among a bunch of good things for mm -hmm. children. And, and then sometimes I've got to find the bravery to say no when asked to do things that I know aren't going to work for kids. And to say no and look at a superintendent or to say no and look at a principal can feel like a dangerous thing, especially for a person like me, mm -hmm. who, again, who, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because that word brave comes up so much that people like to look at my work and they're like, well, Cornelius, you know, you're thinking, you're writing, you're in a bunch of classrooms, you're such a brave person, or you're doing all this social justice work, you're doing all this advocacy, you're mm -hmm. such a brave person. And I don't think that any one of us is actually brave. I think that brave exists in units of time, mm. that I don't think brave is, a, is an adjective that describes a person. I think that brave is an adjective that describes windows of time. And so for me, brave is, is the two seconds that it takes for me to deliver a no when I know that a thing isn't going to be good for kids. For me, brave is the four seconds that it takes to stand up for another teacher when she's having a bad day. And so I don't think I live my day as a brave person. Yeah, I think I have these windows of brave where when the world really calls upon me to do a thing that needs doing, I kind of stand up and I do the thing. Well, yeah. you've even said that bravery can be choices <laughs> that we make in our classroom in the moment. Exactly. When we think about all the heroes that we look up to, I don't think anyone gets up in the morning and plans for brave. I think a kid sneezes and needs a Kleenex and you're right there to give it to him. So you're brave in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that, you know, or, or 
somebody's mom is late to pick them up and they start crying and they're afraid that their mom might not come. And yeah. so you spend the extra five minutes until their mom gets there. Yeah. So none of us wakes up in the morning and plans to be brave. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that the brave happens to us. Yeah. And as I have matured in my career, brave has gone from, yeah, being the one that spends the extra four or five minutes with the kid who misses their mm -hmm. mom to now being able to sit across the table from a principal and say, well, actually the thing that you're asking me to do that we know might be good, I'm gonna have to say no to that because I'm doing 20 other things. Mm -hmm. And that can feel terrifying. Oh God, yes. um, you know, And so that notion of semi-brave, that, you know, yeah. that I'm not the one that's gonna be at the front of the march, I am not the one that's gonna testify in front of Congress, but I am the one that's gonna make the right call mm -hmm. when that right call needs making. And I think that as teachers, all of us can be that. Not every one of us is gonna go testify in front of Congress, but every one of us can look at a moment and say, well, hmm, do I really think this is good for children? Yeah. If not, I say no. If yes, I proceed. And it even gets to issues of, of race and class and gender and ability and nationality that as these issues come up in a classroom, people say, well, Cornelius, you, again, are brave because you know how to talk about race in a classroom. Or you are brave because you know how to challenge books when they don't belong in our library. Or you mm -hmm. are brave because you know how to lobby for more inclusivity. And again, I don't think it's the way that I live my life. It's how I look at the library and realize that these books might give negative characterizations of specific groups of people right. and I can find better books or these books books might not be inclusive enough of kids with disabilities or kids mm -hmm. from single parent homes. You know, and I think, again, when we push for things like Bravian, you know, it feels like every other book wants us to be brave or every mm -hmm. other book wants us to be a change maker. And those things are great, but those things can feel overwhelming. And Sometimes so it seems like, too, we forget that or maybe we don't know in some cases that mm -hmm. we all possess a little bit of power. Yes. And we all have the ability to wield that power yeah. in various different ways. And as you say, in units of time, that power can be shown in just four seconds. Yes. Yes. And, and I think so much of our world is dominated by all that we love mm -hmm. and all that we have to do. You know, it can be hard to think about brave as a lifestyle, but to think about brave as an impulse, mm -hmm. it, it's a very different thing. You know, I, I had a conversation with a great teacher friend a few days ago, and one of the things that she said to me is, she's like, you know, Cornelius, you have the time to think. Yeah. You know, I don't have that time. You know, yeah, that I'm sure that, yeah, that I'm going from period to period to period in teaching and Cornelius, you're a coach. So you have time to teach and think and reflect and teach again. And so I have really embraced the idea that, yep, my time to think is a luxury. Mm -hmm. But then how do I help the teachers that I support? to craft that time for themselves. Mm -hmm. That yes, things are very, very busy, but then looking at how we spend our time, looking at how we spend our love and saying, wow, like where's the time where I'm gonna feed myself? Where's yeah. the time where I'm gonna do that work? Cause that's where a lot of my brave comes from. Oh, so sure. when I'm able to make that impulse call, it's because I have thought about it. Yeah. And I think that working in teams of teachers and really laying out priorities, you know, one of the things that my father always tells me is he says, um, you know, Cornelius, in this life, you're not who you profess to be. Rather, you're where you spend your time, mm -hmm. you know? And so if I profess to be value-driven, and if I profess to put children first, but I spend all my time collating documents and making copies, um, <laughs> yeah. then, then that doesn't really, and, and, and I spend a lot of time making yeah, copies. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, um, and, and so I've really been sitting with teams of teachers and sitting with my mentors and doing time audits yeah. and really looking at, well, how did I spend my time today? And does that reflect my professed value? Mm -hmm. um, and am I okay with that? 
Yeah. And, and that's been a really big thing. But for me, it's been practicing bravery in four, six, eight second increments. Yeah. That again, I don't have to be at the head of every movement if I am the first to make the right decision in a classroom. My thanks to Cornelius for his time today. You can check out all of our podcast conversations with Cornelius on the Heinemann blog, blog.heinemann.com, where we have a special tag of Cornelius Minor Podcast. Do check all of them out. You can also get Cornelius's book, We Got This, available now from Heinemann at heinemann.com. And you can also follow Cornelius on Twitter at Mr. Minor. Thanks for listening.